Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me in the studio today is a man who doesn't have all the answers, but he'll let you know he has all the questions. It's Dale. Hmm. <laughs> I don't even know what the hell to say about that. Every time I come up with the questions, you change the answers. Do I really? Yeah. Hmm. If I get answers, you change the questions. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't even know anymore. Well, you just make up a question and I'll give you a fake answer. <laughs> All right, that'll work. Yeah. What's going on with you? <laughs> same old, same old. Same old, same old. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, Dale never knows what I'm going to say about him, so, I mean, it really is. It's, that was blindside. It is, it is what it is. <laughs> I was like trying to calculate that shit. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> but yeah, just sitting here in the studio ready to record a podcast, man. That's right, man. I'm good to go. I am too. I'm having a good day. Going to have a good episode today. I think so. Yeah, I've been really excited about this one. Yeah, it's, well, we're going to be... Usually uh, dropping no clunker, so they're all good, man. Oh, they are all good. <laughs> you got any shout-outs, bud? I do have one. We'd like to give uh, Danielle Hull a shout-out. She gave us a big-time five-star. 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 Okay, that's enough. <laughs> gave us a, a five-star uh, Apple podcast review. And we really appreciate that. She said, uh, great show. Love listening while I'm at work. And, man, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that for us. It means yep. a lot. Thank you a bunch, Danielle. If anybody else wants to be like Danielle, go to Apple Podcast and leave a rate and review. Yep. Please do, and we will give you a shout-out. That's right. Remember, write something in the box. you got to write something in the box. Yeah. Write, write a review. I mean, you don't have to as far as giving us a five-star, but if you want us to know about it, you have to. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. it'd just be another number. Yeah, it just shows up, and we don't. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we don't mind those. Don't get me wrong. Oh, we love it. But you know, we like to give you a little recognition. Yep, and uh, I want to give another shout out to a fairly new Facebook follower, friend of our show now, friend Dave, of the show, David James. He is a cop. He is retired from several places. He is currently in Bessemer City with the police department there, doing some work, fine work helping solve some cases and we've done had a little bit of conversation with him and he's going to help us out on a few cases and be a good reference for us to lean on when we need some advice on some stuff and find out some stuff for us we always need some kind of advice we do man (laughs) we need some advice on something all the time yeah yeah and you'll have the questions for him (laughs) yeah i definitely ain't got no answers (laughs) hopefully he'll have the answers yeah Uh, there you go we'll get it all worked out now he's actually gonna he's checked a couple cases for us right now and oh cool yeah trying to find some information for them hmm. so we like we like to have a good friend like that it is nice to have a resource here very much so yeah i think uh yesterday was the last day to buy anything if you want to get it for christmas so yeah but yeah you can still go to the store page and order anytime yeah still might come through yeah yeah but oh well get oh, yeah, something on the store page your christmas dreams have been shattered sorry yeah. <laughs> we do have some new stickers though we do have some new stickers they're killer too yeah they're glossy glossy yeah what is that glossy it's shiny slicky that's a shiny house yep they're very cool stickers very cool yep all right but we're gonna get started man let's do it man this might be a little bit longer episode but yeah not really well we're gonna see but we're, we're getting out of north carolina this week though, yeah so. we're going mm-hmm. we are going to the north pole north pole baby yeah this is our christmas episode but not you're right yeah we're in the north pole but not the north pole we are in the city of North Pole, Alaska. That's pretty damn close, isn't it? Yeah, it's up there. But just a little bit of background on the city of North Pole. It is about 1,700 miles south of, like, the geological 
North Pole. Okay, so maybe it ain't so close. No. Uh, <laughs> but now, get this. The people there that live in the city of North Pole, they take full advantage of this town's moniker. Well, I'm sure they named it that for a reason, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And the streets, um, Santa Claus Lane, Chris Kringle Avenue. Well. Yeah, so they take full advantage of it. Well, I don't blame them. And the town's biggest attraction is a large gift shop named the Santa Claus House. Well, how original. Yep, and it also has the world's largest fiberglass statue of Santa. I wonder how big it is. I don't know. You didn't look it up? I hadn't looked it up, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the word for it. Okay. On my research. <laughs> now, the city of North Pole sits south of Fairbanks, Alaska. Right. And it stretches between Fort Wainwright and the Isleson Air Force Base and between the Chena and Tanana Rivers. Now, our story that we're talking about today, Dale, uh, takes place in the late 70s and early 80s. And this is when there were some murders that shattered this little town of North Pole. Mm, right above Moose Creek, huh? Yeah, right in that area around Fairbanks. I think that's a cool name, Yeah, Moose Creek. That is a cool name. Now, the first person that was murdered there in our story that we're talking about is a lady by the name of Glenda Sodeman. Now, she was 19 years old, and she vanished from her home there in North Pole on August the 29th of 1979. Now, Glenda, she was a newlywed, and she was the daughter of an Alaskan state trooper. She was only 19, I think. Yes, and her and her husband had a small baby. And according to her husband, when he arrived home on August the 29th, the baby was in the crib. Right. But Glenda was nowhere to be found. Yeah, no, no sign of her at mm-hmm. all. Now, by all accounts, Glenda was happy and had no reason to run away or leave. Right. But And there's it, no evidence of foul play, I don't think, either, right? No. Right. Uh-uh. And the following October, Glenda's decomposed body was found in a gravel pit near Moose Creek on the Richardson Highway. Mm. And it was not far from the Isleson Air Force Base and 22 miles south of Fairbanks. And Glenda had been shot in the face, and troopers found a 38 caliber pistol cartridge near her body. Mm. And the medical examiner discovered no evidence of that Glenda had been sexually assaulted. Right. And suspicion quickly fell on Glenda's new husband. Yeah, no, even though they, they couldn't see no evidence of a sexual assault, they did see she had been strangled. Her. Yes. Yeah. But Glenda's husband... He took a lie detector test and failed it. Yeah, don't take him. No, and even Glenda's father, who was the Alaskan state trooper, suspected his son-in-law of this crime. Mm. But the troopers found no evidence to arrest him for this. I mean, man, that sucked. Yeah. Now, on June eleventh of nineteen eighty, an eleven-year-old little girl named Doris Oring. So this is like a, almost a year later. Right? Yes. Her and her older brother, Thomas, they were riding their bicycles on the roads in North Pole, Alaska. And Doris, she was getting ahead of her brother a little bit. When her brother caught up with her, he saw her talking to a man in a a blue car. Yeah. And he was outside his car with the hood raised. Right. And what he described is that the man was having some engine problems. And when Doris's brother, Thomas, pulled up alongside Doris, the man quickly shut the hood and left. Yeah. Jumped in the car and left. If he was having engine problems, he must have got that fixed there real quick. He must have. (laughs) 
Now, two days later, Doris had disappeared, and her bicycle was found hidden in the bushes along Badger Road near her home there in North Pole. Hmm. And there was a witness reported seeing a small blue car tear around the corner in an intersection near Badger Road. Yeah. And the driver seemed to be a little preoccupied and looked like he was messing with something in the seat next to him. Yeah. And the police believe the attacker hid in the bushes on the side of the road and waited for Doris to ride her bike past his little hiding <clears> spot. Right, and then jump out and grab her off the bike. Yep. And once she got close, you know, he just grabbed her. Yeah, grabbed the bike and threw it in the ditch and throw her in the car and roll. Yeah. Yeah. Which definitely could have happened. That could have been what they were wrestling around the front seat with. Now, because Doris's brother thought the man he had seen talking to his sister might be wearing a Air Force uniform because yeah. you got the Allison Air Force Base right near there. Correct. And because the other witnesses described the driver of the speeding car as having a military-style haircut. Yeah. And then her brother actually gave a good description to the police sketch artist. Yeah. Yeah. And he told the police that the man had a blue shirt. It looked like it was an Air Force uniform. So this is what they're going on at the moment, on this possibly being a, a military man. Now, you think, really, it makes a lot of sense for a guy if he's if he was going to be doing this to actually wear his uniform out while he's doing it? Man, I've seen all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. Of course, man. I guess if if basically this was a military town, you know, I'm sure there were tons of military people around, so maybe it, it would kind of blend in, really, there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, think about it. Now, the state troopers, they asked security at Allison Air Force Base for a list of blue cars registered to drive on the base. Right. And the Air Force handed the troopers a a list of 550 names of people who own registered vehicles, possibly matching the rough description of the car the troopers had provided them. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And investigators were desperate to find Doris, but with no fingerprints or other forensic evidence, they didn't know where to go. They They didn't know where to start. Well, and then they get all this, and that's all by hand. There's mm-hmm. no, no no computer just to go through it and split it out and just take all these names and go through them every one by hand. Yep. Now, since the troopers hadn't cleared Glenda's husband, you know, he was a suspect right. in her murder. They decided to question him about the abduction of Doris Oring. Man, that would suck. Yeah. And they gave him another polygraph test. Mm-hmm. And this time the polygraph examiner found the test results inconclusive mm, the dreaded inconclusive yeah so it was either he passed or he didn't pass they right. wasn't sure mm-hmm. and the test results frustrated the troopers man they had no physical evidence pointing to glinda's husband right but he could not pass the lie detector test when questioned about the murder of his wife or the abduction of young doris oring mm. So now the troopers, they decide to bring in a polygraph expert to question Glenda's husband. And after 10 minutes, the expert left the examination room and told the troopers that Glenda's husband had an irregular heartbeat. Now, he's uh, in the Air Force, right? He's a military man, yeah. 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 So Hmm. this heartbeat, they said, could never produce a passing polygraph test result. So it's basically a heart murmur. Yeah, that's what they described it as. Yeah. And the test results from an individual with a heartbeat like his would always be classified as inconclusive or failing. And since the troopers had no reason other than his lie detector test to suspect him, they dismissed him as a suspect. Well, yeah. They ain't got nothing on him. They're just trying to pin it on him, I think. They're just trying to find anything they can, I guess. Yeah, and this poor guy's lost his, his wife, and he's trying to raise this young baby by himself and keeps getting 
<laughs> accused of everything. And his father-in-law thinks he's done it. Yeah. Everything, man. So you wonder why they wouldn't have found that, that murmur, you know, like a military physical, you know? You'd think. I asked you about that. Yeah. So I was yeah, pondering you'd that. You'd think that they went. Would, they would have already known it. Went through a rigorous test to have a physical. And I don't, I mean, I'm not a doctor. Or I was wondering how, if the first two guys, how did they not catch it? I guess it's just something like, they don't look for. I, I don't know. It's that, that. I mean, I don't really know how a lot of detector tests works besides I'm not taking one. Yeah, they just they put a strap you up and it's check your heartbeat and all this stuff. But check your blood pressure and your heartbeat and your temperature and all this stuff. Yeah, and notices any changes in in those things when you're answering questions. You're supposed to put a tack in your shoe and smash on the shoe every time you answer. Yeah, <laughs> or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how it works. <laughs> I think I saw it on Get Smart or something. Okay, that's what we're going with. <laughs> all right, now on January the thirty first, a little over seven months after someone had kidnapped Doris. 20-year-old Marlene Peters disappeared. Now, I think Marlene was an indigenous woman there in mm, Alaska. Yep. Now, Marlene was last seen trying to hitch a ride from Fairbanks to Anchorage. Crazy. To, to visit her father, who was sick with cancer. Yeah, she thought he was going to pass away, so she was trying to get there hitchhiking in January. It's like a six-hour ride. Yeah. Now, police considered Marlene's disappearance suspicious, but they had no way to know if someone had abducted her near Fairbanks, or she disappeared somewhere else between Fairbanks and Anchorage. Or the dreaded, she probably ran away. Yeah. Now, troopers did not immediately link her case to Doris Oring or mm -hmm. Glenda. Man, that's just crazy, because, you know, we're checking into this stuff, and, you know, how cold it gets up there. If she would have got a ride, like, partial way, and then got had to get out, and then couldn't get another ride, she basically would freeze to death. Yeah. You know, that's a long way. Well, it's something me and you had learned, too, that in this area, they sort of look out after each other. Yes. They, uh, if you see somebody out like that, it's so cold, you give them a ride. Yeah, it said that uh, one of the things we, we heard that, that you're taught at a young age up there, if you see anybody in distress or needing help, you stop and help them. Yeah. Because they could freeze to death in just a matter of you know, time. Yeah. So, hmm, it's just kind of playing in the favor of some other people this way but you get somebody in your car you can do what you want to with them right yeah so it, and it's an easy trap you know you got a heater and they're freezing they're getting in yeah five months after marlene disappeared 16 year old wendy wilson vanished and wendy was last seen hitchhiking and a witness saw her climb into the white pickup truck in moose creek near fairbanks yeah one of her her and one of her friends was actually walking and they were going to go to her uh Wendy's boyfriends and the other girl decided she wasn't going, so they Parted decided ways. to go different ways. And then said it wasn't no time at all. She turned around and seen that she was already talking to a guy in the truck and got in the truck. She saw her get in the truck. Yes. Now three days after she disappeared, Wendy's body was found near Johnson Road, thirty-two miles south of Fairbanks, near the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline. Hmm. And Wendy's killer had strangled her. And then shot her in the face with the shotgun. Yeah, with the shotgun this time. Yes. Crazy, man. Yeah. Now, nine weeks after the discovery of Wendy's body, Marlene Peters' remains were found. This is the indigenous woman trying to make her way to Anchorage. Clear dad. Yeah. Yeah. Her remains were found, and Marlene had also been dumped near Johnson Road. And she was found only two miles from where Wendy had been dumped. Also shot in the face with a shotgun. And strangled. That's just overkill, man. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Now, two days 
after police recovered Marlene Peters' body, they were notified of a disappearance of a 19-year-old female named Lori King. Now, Lori had been seen walking in Fairbanks, and the Fairbanks police and the Alaska State Troopers now knew they had a serial killer operating near North Pole, Alaska. Right. And just outside of Fairbanks. And the media was dubbing these string of murders as the Fairbanks serial murders. Mm. And then they later called them the North Pole murders. Yeah, because it was actually closer to there. Yeah. Now, police, as well as civilian and military volunteers, searched for Doris Orring and Lori King's body near the Johnson Road area where the remains of Wendy Wilson and Marlene Peters had been discovered. But they had no sign of either of them. Mm. Yeah, nothing. Now, on September the 2nd of 1981, four airmen on a hunting trip came across the remains of Lori King in a wooded area near a missile site off Johnson Road. That's a good place to be hunting. Yeah. (laughs) Missile site. Yeah. Now, earlier searches had somehow missed this area, and the killer had done nothing to hide Lori's body. Like Wendy and Marlene, Lori had been strangled and then shot in the face with a shotgun. Man, this dude's M.O. is crazy. Yeah. But it, they didn't find any signs of sexual assault on these women. No. Mm-mm. Just to strangle and then shoot them in the face. Yeah. Mm. Now, because Lori's body was found on federal reservation, the FBI joined in on this case, and the task force was formed consisting of FBI agents, Alaska State Troopers, the Allison Air Force Base Office of Special Investigations, and the Army's Criminal Investigation Division from nearby Fort Wainwright at Fairbanks Police Department. Now, investigators knew they were hunting a serial killer, Dale, and somehow convincing girls and young women to climb in their car. He's like, hey, look, I got a heater. (laughs) Come on. He was getting off on this. Yeah. Now, to get a better understanding of what was going on, the Alaska State Trooper investigator, his name was Sam Bernard, they flew him to Atlanta, Georgia. Mm Mm-hmm where a joint federal and state task force were searching for a serial killer who was murdering young black men. This was the Atlanta child murders. Right. Yeah. And Bernard, he got in on this, and he was learning how the Atlanta task force used computer technology to manage and organize the leads and cases. Right. And this is when uh, Bernard also flew to the Behavioral Sciences Division in Quantico, Virginia, and yeah. met with, and he met with experts there to form a profile of the serial killer operating up near the North Pole. So they're doing pretty good here. Yeah. To figure out some stuff. Because, you know, you got to realize, computers were just coming in, dude. Yeah. I mean, they they were <clears throat> around, but they really didn't have, you know. They definitely weren't linked. There were no databases you could check. Right. That's yeah. why I said before, you know, they had to go through all those cars by hand. All 550 pages or whatever it was. Yeah. Now, at the time... When Bernard consulted with the Behavioral Sciences Division, they had a success rate of 85% for creating accurate profiles of unknown serial killers. Right. That's pretty dang good. Sound like mine hunters, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the psychologists in the unit must have seemed like wizards, and but not humans or machines, <laughs> to uh, Bernard, man. I mean, they had all this information they could give him to find out what was going on in the North Pole. Right. Now, the profilers told Bernard that the North Pole serial killer was probably single and lived alone. And they believed that he had a hard time holding a job. And even though Doris Oring's brother stated that the man he had seen talking to her wore an Air Force uniform, 
Experts said they believed the murder was civilian. Hmm. Now, Bernard returned to Alaska with unknown killer's profile. Mm-hmm. This is what he got from the FBI, and task force members believe they now had something solid to go on. Right, at least somewhere to start. Yeah. Now, there was another trooper named Jim McCann and trooper Chris Stockard. They undertook this massive task of organizing and entering two and a half years' worth of information on this serial killer. Stockard, who had computer training, developed a program to cross-reference the items in the database and... They were prioritizing valuable leads and suspects. Yeah, when they got back, they actually built a computer specifically for this. And they hired people to enter the information. Right. Yeah. So so they're like, we got to catch up here. Now, after Lori King was murdered on May 16th of 1981, the abductions and murders stopped. And one and a half years later, in November of 1982, the task force concluded that the murderer was either dead, in prison, in the hospital, or had moved out of the area. yeah, Yeah, gone. And the task force decided they need to look at military people who had transferred from Isleson Air Force Base. That's pretty smart. Yes, very smart. You know, they weren't taking the advice of the FBI because they said it was a civilian. Yeah. So they were looking at military men. Right. Because this area, man, it is military. Right. Back full. Yeah. And they be- they began scaring the records of recent transfers from Isleson Air Force Base. And they also contacted police agencies near other U.S. Air Force bases around the world, and they asked them to be on the lookout for any similar murders to the ones they had near the North Pole. Yeah, I'm sure, especially if they're thinking this is a serial guy, and then that's his, basically his, uh, M-O. quote, signature. Yeah. Yeah. Then uh, that's definitely uh, pretty one that would stand out. Yeah. Now, the list of transferred Air Force personnel included the name of a guy named Thomas Richard Bunday. Bunday. Bunday, like Sunday, but Bunday. With a B, yeah. Yeah. Now, Bunday had transferred to Shepard Air Force Base near Wichita Falls, Texas. Mm -hmm. And his transfer happened on September the 9th of 1981. Which was just a week after the hunters had found the body of Lori King. Ain't that weird? Yeah. Now, the Wichita Falls police reported they had recently investigated a murder similar to the one that occurred near Fairbanks. But police in Texas believe the woman there had been killed by a drug dealer who was now dead. Yeah, I thought it was a meth guy who got blown up in a damn uh, meth lab. Yeah, that's what they were thinking. Yeah. But he was already dead. But the task force noted that Bundy's resemblance to the drawing made from the Doris Oring brother description was similar to Bundy. Mm. Yeah. And also, Doris Oring's brother Thomas had picked out Bunday in a photo lineup. Yep. And also... He didn't have no trouble picking out his car either. No, huh? He picked him out right away. Yeah. And troopers believe Bunday's Alaska neighbors and co-workers painted an unflattering picture of him, man. They described him as an unlikable loner and had a variety of shotguns, pistols. Yeah, and he had a lot of trouble with uh, female co-workers as well. Yeah, he yeah. would be kind of sexual in nature toward him. He would make... Rude remarks and things yeah. like that. He had a lot of uh, complaints. Yes. Now, just a little bit of background on Thomas Richard Bunday. He was born on September the 28th of 1948 in Nashville, Tennessee. And he was the younger of two kids in the family. He had an older brother named Ralph. And he was 15 years older than him. Wow. So I'd imagine Thomas was a bonus child. 
Yeah. I'd say he was just he was one slid in. Yeah. But his father was a World War II veteran and he suffered from a lot of mental disorders and was aggressive toward his wife and his kids. Yeah, aggressive meaning uh, beat on them pretty bad. Yeah. Bundy was also unpopular at school too, but he was a good student, he was sociable, and he had he had a few friends and acquaintances which helped develop his I guess his positive outlook. Yeah. But after graduating high school in 1966, he married his high school sweetheart mm-hmm. and in 1967 joined the United States Air Force, where he achieved the rank of technical sergeant. And in the late 1960s and early 70s, Bundy was serving in Southeast Asia. And during this time, his wife was messing around on him. Uh, you can say that. She had a child by another man. Yes. Now, despite this... He continued to live with his wife. Yeah, they, he kind of accepted it. Yeah, and they had a daughter together. Mm-hmm. But I think this extramarital affair strained their relationship. You think? Yeah. And in the 1970s, Bundy was sent to further his service at the Allison Air Force Base in Alaska. And during this time, he began to show signs of emotional burnout and started visiting a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, having a troubled childhood and um wife messing around on you and having a kid by another man i think that's gonna did eat at you a little bit it's gonna put a toll on you dude yeah now in january of 1983 trooper sam bernard this is the trooper that went to atlanta to study under the fbi there you know for the child mm-hmm. murders the atlanta child murders with wayne williams yeah yeah he flew to shepherd air force base there in texas and interviewed richard bundy now, while Bundy agreed to answer Bernard's questions, he refused to take a lie detector test. Right. And he refused to allow them to search his home or even give any kind of samples of his hair. Well, the thing was, they flew down, and then uh, it was kind of like, uh, we say, it's like when it's not official, because they just had a hotel room, and they wanted him to come over and talk to him. Yeah, they just wanted to interview him. Right, so it's like an unofficial interview. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, sure. And I think what he was thinking is, I'll go talk to them. At least I'll find out what they know. And then I don't have to tell them nothing. Yeah, because what had happened, they had got the information that of somebody transferring there, and there was a murder like that, the right. ones they were having, you know, the one that was... The one they thought was done by the meth lab. Guy. Yeah. But it was also a strangling and shooting the face. Yeah, but the Texas uh, authorities there, they were thinking it was the meth guy. Right. That had done the murder. Right. But this uh, Sam Bernard, he wasn't too convinced of that. He thought his uh, man was still alive. And when Bernard told Bundy that Doris's brother had identified him in a photo, um, he didn't respond. No. Mm -mm. He didn't really tell him nothing. No. And Bernard returned to Fairbanks and said he didn't believe they had enough evidence against Bundy. And since Bundy didn't fit into the FBI profile, he felt they should investigate other suspects. Hmm. And most of the task force felt Bundy was their man and they believed it was time to take a closer look at him Dale yeah but you know they guess you know you get the FBI giving you a profile what do you suppose to do right. I mean these guys are experts yep but you I guess you have to well it was still a fledgling program too though so you know they were they were good and they had a very good track record but you know I don't know about experts yeah well, they're the hell they, they developed it so I guess they had to be the expert but. I guess now, on March the 7th of 1983, Trooper McCann and Stockard, they flew to Texas again where they met with the Texas State and 
Federal Police, mm-hmm. as well as the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And they decided to take a, I guess, place a loose surveillance on Thomas Bundy. Yeah. Now, McCann and Stocker, they rented two rooms at a local motel. Right. I guess to make it their little local headquarters. Mm-hmm. And then asked Richard Bundy to stop by. Yes. So they could talk to him. Mm-hmm. And he willingly talked sure, to him. I'm like, sure, I'll go. He showed, he showed up and had a conversation with him for several hours over three or four days. Yeah, and they had those uh, two rooms. They were adjoining rooms. and said when the, when you walk in, they had maps and photos and all stuff all over the wall to make it look like they were about to close in on their man and all kind of stuff like that, kind of like uh, you see on Criminal Minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, playing they, it they up. They trying to play him up, yeah, and see what, they, what kind of rise they could get out of him. Yeah. He was too smart for that. Yeah. Now, at one point, Bundy made sort of a strange comment that uh, he said he had trouble with girls while he was in Alaska. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Now, McCann and Stalker, they invited Bundy to come back the following day so they continued their conversation, and Bundy agreed. Yeah, okay. They said uh, he would even show up early sometimes on these days. (laughs) Like I said, I think he wanted to know what they knew, too. Yeah, I think so. Just to see how close they were, and, and then he was probably kind of getting off on hearing it again too. Plus, seeing the photos and those maps and stuff was probably really scratching his itch. Yeah. Now they told Bundy that they knew he killed women in Alaska, and they knew how and when he had killed them. Yeah. All they wanted to know was why. Just yeah. tell us why. Yeah. But he didn't play that game either. And they told him they also knew he'd killed a woman in Texas. Right. And they knew he was guilty. And they told him. He would either spend the rest of his life in prison in Alaska or in a cell in Texas. Because Alaska doesn't have the death penalty. Right. But Texas has the death penalty. And a lot of heat. So, so you can either stay here in the heat till you die or you can go to Alaska. And so you, you weigh it out. Yeah. But Bundy didn't say too much. No. And by the end of the four-hour interview, he began to cry. Well, I think they what they did is they started telling him that Doris's family really wanted to have her back and wanted to know where she was and this is the the 11 year old girl and you know it's like she had a big family and she wanted them back and they wanted to give her a proper burial and you know put her to rest and i think that's when he started to cry yeah yeah i guess it was hitting him pretty hard hitting him in the feels yeah now bundy returned to the motel the following day for another meeting yep but this time it was different yeah he didn't stay he didn't stay Instead, he handed the troopers a note, mm-hmm. and this note was pretty much saying that he was denying he had murdered women in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Now, the following day, Trooper McCann and Stockard, an FBI agent, a representative from Wichita Falls District Attorney's Office, and Shepard's OSI observers presented the Bundys with a search warrant for their home. Yes. And they spent about 12 hours going through everything searching his home and vehicles right and they found ammunition that was similar to the ammunition used in the alaska murders like 16 gauge shotgun shells yeah and they found some newspaper clippings dale yep and these were clippings about the alaska murders right and they looked at me looked at him said oh that's just a souvenir that i brought back from my time in Alaska. Reminds me of Fairbanks. But it just happened to be about the murders. Just happened to be. Yeah. yeah. And, and sort of chuckled it off. And then he also found uh, like some surveillance style, style uh, photos of young girls. Yeah, which ain't weird at all. No, not at all. But now, after they finished up their search of his home, Bundy agreed to meet with them the next morning, about 9 a.m. Right. 
and uh, after uh, these guys left, you know, from cleaning up with the uh, the search warrants and stuff, Bundy realized that he didn't have his keys. So his he's like, car keys. Yeah, he couldn't find his car keys anywhere. So he called McCann and asked him if they had taken them by mistake. And he said that he actually had, and he was sorry. Now, I believe it's bull. I believe he did it on purpose because it's a pretty smart move, really. But anyway, he's like, yeah, I did. I'm sorry, and I'll bring them right back to you now. And he goes, no, don't worry about it. He said, that, uh, I'll just get them. I'm coming back in the morning for another meeting, so I'll just pick them up then. Yeah. So they make sure they was going to get to see him one more time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So Bundy agreed to meet with them at 9 o'clock the following morning. Mm-hmm. But instead, he showed up at their motel room at 8 a.m., mm-hmm. an hour early catching them off guard and bundy confessed to murdering five women in alaska including doris oring must have been thinking about that yeah whose body had still not been found yeah. yet. and he told troopers he had discarded doris's body in a remote section of the allison air force base right now at this time trooper mccann and trooper stockard they felt a little helpless dude yeah. Yes, very much so. They had no authority to arrest anybody in Texas. Right. And the Texas yeah. police needed a warrant to arrest somebody for crimes committed in Alaska. You know, and plus, like we said, this is another kind of unofficial official interview. So it's like, what do we, what do, we do? He he, he, he uh, confessed, but we really can't do anything. Yeah. yeah. And Bundy told the troopers he would voluntarily return to Alaska with them. Mm-hmm. And so, show her where the body was. Yeah. Yep. And he would do it without a warrant for his arrest and everything. They couldn't restrain Bundy. No. Uh-uh. So what had happened, they had um, were granted a private plane. Well, they were going to fly him out, but the, um, there was no uh, direct flights. And the only, uh, the only flight had a layover in Seattle. And with them no, having no authority, they were worried if they took that one and they got to Seattle that he would change his mind and, and leave then. You know, because they didn't have no authority to stop him if they wanted to. Yeah. So they didn't know what to do, and that's when uh, the governor of Alaska said, "Well, we just get you a private plane and fly you straight back." Yeah. Yeah. That was very smart. That yeah. way, he wouldn't have a chance to change his mind. Yeah, it was good for him to pony up and pay for that too. You know. Mm-hmm. Now, the following day, the troopers had arrest warrants in hand, but Bundy failed to show up at the agreed upon time for their meeting. Yeah, I guess they sent the arrest warrants down overnight or something. Yeah. And the troopers called his house, and his wife said Richard was riding his motorcycle. Well, the thing was, they said that they had a surveillance team on him the whole time. At his house overnight. House and yeah. everything, yeah. So how he slid out on his motorcycle, we don't know. Yeah. But she said he left on his motorcycle, but she expected to be back. Said that he had run to the H&R block office to drop off some taxes, and he'd be back later. Yeah. Now, McCann and Stalker, they waited for Bundy to arrive at their motel room or the local police to call and say that Bundy had been in custody. And as they waited, uh, it was getting pretty dark around Wichita Falls. I think there were some storms around and even some tornado watches. Yeah, so it was a very weird day. Yeah. You know, dark and heavy bad. downpours right. and different things. Dark clouds and kind of creepy overall. But now, like we said, Richard's wife said he left on his motorcycle, but he sped out of Wichita Falls. Mm-hmm. And when it began to rain, he turned around and started back toward town. Now, he had went like 40 miles out of town. Yeah. Yeah. And he had stopped under an overpass, and he pulled McKenzie's and Stockard's business cards from his wallet mm-hmm. and placed them under a rock yeah. under the overpass. And then he continued driving back. At a high rate of speed. Yep. 
And this was when he swerved in front of a large dump truck coming toward him on the other lane. So basically, he did a Sons of Anarchy ending era. Said he was running more than 100 mile an hour, and he just kind of swerved into another lane and ran head into a dump truck. Yeah, and the driver of the dump truck said that they tried to get off the road to avoid him. He said he just kept coming toward him. Didn't so have time. He yeah. didn't have a chance to. Without endangering other people. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a miracle that the guy from the truck wasn't hurt. Exactly. That's what I was worried about. Yeah. That Bundy died instantly. Mm-hmm. So they still never knew where the little girl was buried. No. Uh-uh. It's crazy. And analysis and of the forensics evidence found in the Bundy home indicated some of the hairs collected from Bundy's truck belonged to one of the victims, Wendy Wilson. Mm-hmm. And the shotgun shells found in his home were manufactured at the same bunch as the shells used to obliterate the faces of Lori King and Wendy Wilson. Hmm. Yeah. Now, get this. In 1986, three years after Thomas Bundy's death and a few months after Doris Oring should have graduated from high school, yeah. Doris's skull was found in a remote section of the Isleson Air Force Base. So they finally found her, but it took them three more years. Huh? Yeah, so the, the Oring family was able to have a little bit of closure and hmm. put her to rest Crazy. in some way, yeah. Crazy story. So, they knew who did it, but there was never any justice. Like it was, he took his own, had his own justice. Yeah, and he was a pretty creepy dude. I mean, like the 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 first lady who who he abducted there, the the mother of the baby, he said that he had seen her in the yard walking around barefoot and stuff, and just knew when he saw her that he was going to get her. Yeah. And uh, it took him a couple of days, and said he drove up and he seen her out in the kitchen. He was she was uh, looking the mail, and he pulled up and rolled the window down. And uh, was asking her where something was, but he wasn't saying it real loud. And she's like, hang on, I can't hear you. When she walked to the car, he jumped out with a gun and forced her in the, gun, in the car. Yeah. And that's when he took her off and uh, climbed on top of her and just basically choked her out and then drug her out of the car and shot her in the head or in the face, actually. Crazy. But, uh, but from whatever thing we can think, that, that just didn't do it for him. That's why he changed to a shotgun to be a lot more damage. Yeah. And then uh, the little girl that he got, he actually – Saw her, it was like a a wildlife path or something that they were driving on, but I'm not sure because I don't know the area, you know, how the roads were and this stuff. But anyway, he had seen her riding a bike. The Doris O-ring. Yeah, so he passed her up and then pulled in front of her and kind of blocking the trail and then act like his car died. And when she pulled up to him, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, my car died. She goes, well, that's okay. I'll just go around. And then he looked around and seen the brother. She goes, oh, that's my brother. So that's when he decided to close the hood and leave. But two days later, he he seen her again riding. She was coming home from. Uh, from He'd been watching her. Yeah, coming home from swim lessons, so she was headed the other way. So he drove down past her and hid in the bushes, and that's exactly what he did then. Like uh, like they thought, he had jumped out and said he had brought a towel with him, and he grabbed her and crammed a towel in her mouth, and then uh, grabbed the bike with the other hand, threw the bike in the ditch, and threw her in the car, and took her off and done her the same way. Yeah, choked her out. And then it's just crazy. The other girls were, you know, hitchhiking, just basically easy for him to get. Yeah. Choke them out and shoot them in the head. Yeah. I don't know what his deal was with, you know, strangle them. And then just, he was getting off and watching watching the life go out and then shoot him in the face with a shotgun. I'm like, Jesus, oh, God, man. I just don't understand that unless it's just something. I don't know. I can't explain it, so I'm not even going to try. I know. It's, it's just wild. And then uh, to to leave like he did and gives nobody no no clearance or you know no closure on nothing no and they just happened to find doris's remains yep yeah they thought that he would at least 
have told where her body was because i mean he was willing to go back at one time to show him where the body was but well, he said that you know knew he's probably one of them and he thought about it and he's like hell ain't staying forever in prison so yeah he was going either way he was going to be in prison somewhere yeah or be you know killed or whatever so he decided to do it his own way i guess yeah but that is that is the north pole murders uh thomas richard bunday bunday yeah Bad dude. Bad dude. But he's gone, though. Yeah, and we don't have to pay for him being yeah. prison. <laughs> All right, Dale. We are going to get out of here, bud. All right, man. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode will be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.